Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and once again, may I welcome you to our show. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series of books, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, all of which are available, volumes one through eight, and soon, volume nine, at Amazon, in ebook and paperback formats. And if you like the audio thing, which a lot of people do, I now have volumes one through eight at Audible and iTunes and Amazon. And by the way, my latest book, How to Make Money, God's Universal Principles for Wealth and Prosperity, Universal Laws, that is, is now in audible format. So take a listen to that and wise up, my friend. And without any further ado, my brother, KJ. Kev, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. How about you, Bill? Marvelous, marvelous. You know, a lot of work went into that uh, uh, God's universal laws of wealth and prosperity, how to make money. And I think people will find that very interesting if they give it a listen or a read. You know, Bill, I haven't read it yet. And uh, as folks know, as you know, folks are about to learn, I'm getting ready to go on vacation, a little bit of hiking in the forest, looking for the hairy man. That's right. And um, I'm, I got to download it so I can uh, take a look at it while I'm sitting around the fire, maybe figure out how to make a few bucks. Yeah. Now, <laughs> what we're talking about here. A lot of people are aware of certain principles that are universal. We could look at science. We could look at mathematics. There are things, let's call them base points, upon which other things are built or studied. And this is no different. These are base points, universal base points, that if you align yourself with them and live by them and in them, make them part of who you are, how you think, and what you do— They will work for you in the same way as all of these other universal laws do uh, in the heavens above us and on the earth which we live on. And I'm talking everything right down to reliance on the tides coming in and out every six hours. Uh, You know, like Einstein, what goes up must come down. Gravity, the sun rising and setting. I mean, these things are constants in our lives. And there are constants which, if you align yourself with them, will position you 
to enjoy greater wealth and greater prosperity. So you're talking about beyond uh, buy low and sell high. That's correct. <laughs> that is correct. Just checking. Just I mean, checking. I know that universal law. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying I follow it, but I do know it. <laughs> well, I think that's not a law. It's just good advice. <laughs> true, true. Uh, true. Yeah, so it's, cool. a, it's an interesting listen. Uh, it's also an interesting read. And something you would certainly want to go back over uh, many times to really gain a foothold on what it is I'm saying or advising you to do. And uh, then again, it's up to the individual whether they do it or not. Very cool. Like everything else, right, Kev? Absolutely. No doubt about it. You can lead a Bigfoot to the trough, but you can't make him drink it. And as my friend tells me, country boy here, he says his grandfather told him you can lead a horse to water, but if you drown him, you can't ride him home. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of my favorite country sayings. Yeah, well, uh, Kev, I'll tell you, you know, and I'm never going to forget it as long as I live. The the best thing you ever told me was from that good old boy in Texas who got pulled over with all the guns in the car. Yeah. And uh, that was, uh, hands down, one of the funniest things I ever heard. And and true. And true, true, folks. So that's my, my buddy. He gets pulled over down there with his wife. And, uh, you know, Texas, uh, have some pretty friendly, uh, firearm laws and he was fully licensed and things like that. And of course, if you do have a concealed carry or anything like that, they tell you one of the first things you have to do is when you get pulled over for whatever you're pulled over for, you have to tell the, uh, officer that, you know, you do have a concealed carry and you do have weapons and tell them about the weapons and where they are. You know, it's just like good good safe disclosure and he got pulled over by a state trooper in texas i think down around san antonio if i recall correctly and uh, he started to ask him and i'll mess this up folks if you can compare my notes from uh, the first episode to now but it was basically uh the trooper said sir do you have any uh weapons in the vehicle and he said yeah you know i got a glock 19 on my hip i got uh you know uh uh M&P shield 9mm in the glove box. My wife's got a Glock 19 in her purse. And I got uh, an AR-15 in the back seat and two AR-15s in the trunk. (laughs) And he said, uh, the officer said, sir, what are you afraid of? And uh, my buddy said, absolutely nothing. (laughs) That's the quote. W.J. was talking about. <laughs> Every time I hear that and think about it, it oh, just freaking it's, it's cracks me one. up. Oh, it's a great man. One. And that's absolutely true, That's nothing. absolutely true. <laughs> absolutely nothing. That guy's a one-man army. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of and, that in Texas. Though. I get it. And his wife, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. Well, you know, that's what they tell you down here, Bill, when you go for the concealed carry. Of course, they're trying to sell more training and everything else. But yeah. they're like, well, does your significant other have uh, 
have a concealed carry? And they're like, why? You know, and if you say no, they're like, why not? Like, you know, what's what's better than one person with a gun? <laughs> Clearly two. More is yeah. better. Even <laughs> even your children's should have one. <laughs> even your youngins. I mean, what happens if you're jams? Could you picture some six-year-old, you know, pulling out some freaking hand cannon, you know, 44? (laughs) Back off, mister. No, no, no. That's good in the cartoons, folks. We're not talking (laughs) about really having six-year-olds do that, of course. Naturally. (laughs) Naturally, yeah. Oh, that is Good stuff, Bill. All right. So we, today, in Cryptids in the News and Other Oddities... We are going to the land of other oddities, okay? <laughs> okay. So I drew on inspiration on this one. You know, a lot of them come in from our listeners, stuff that I read about, stuff that I see. But I also have here in my home office slash recording studio some cool stuff hanging on the wall that has come to me through the years. Uh-huh. And I have this one uh, poster of sorts that my lovely daughter gave me, and it's called Jeepers and Creepers. Oh. And it's uh, basically a five-creature-by-five-creature five matrix of cryptids. And uh, most of the cryptids on there we've covered, and I was looking at it the other day, maybe a week or so ago, and I was like, you know, what the heck is a pug wudgie? Oh. Yeah. So you know this one, Bill. Well, the only reason I know it is a guy who I work with from El Salvador, uh, one day... Tongue in cheek, joking with me, says, "Hey, Bill, did you ever check into the puckwudgie?" <laughs> and I was like, "What the heck is a puckwudgie?" And here you are. So isn't that funny? Yeah, let's let's hear about it because I have no idea what it is. He showed me a picture yeah. of it. Well, yeah, it's like a little nymph. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, two to three feet tall. And like these little nymphs or fairies and stuff, you know, they're kind of cute or kind of weird looking like an elf, but uh, they're not necessarily friendly. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So these things are like two to three feet tall. They're human-like, but, you know, pretty weird looking. Mm -hmm. There's been sightings of them for hundreds of years here in the U.S., Mm -hmm. okay? So, uh, and they go back, of course... To the Native Americans, as well as modern Americans. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have these very weird traits, like some fairies do, where they can appear and disappear at will. So a little bit of shape-shifting going on. Mm -hmm. And they have uh, a knack of luring people toward them, whether it's with, uh, you know, some type of magic Or like uh, they can create these glowing orbs of sorts that get Mm -hmm. people to come over and investigate. Uh, And then they can launch these poison arrows, believe it or not, into people. Hmm. And And they can also Do the poison arrows kill people or put them to sleep or something? uh, All of the above. <laughs> it almost sounds like some type of alien uh, abduction scenario or something. Yeah, I mean, to me, it sounds like more of like an evil, uh, 
evil spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know, but you could you could go any direction with this. Yeah, and the shapeshifters um, shapeshifters do that a lot. They say the shapeshifters yes. mimic like grandma or something and try to call you over. Yeah, whatever it is to lure you in, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. honestly, like you know, if it's a if it's a shapeshifter mimicking a twelve foot tall, three thousand pound Bigfoot in the forest, that's probably not a good strategy, right? Because unless you're really <laughs> dumb, you're not going to walk towards it and say, "Oh, hey, how's it going?" But if it was grandma or you know uh, a lost uh, Labrador Retriever puppy, whatever, you know, something that would pull you in. Yes, mm-hmm, good mm-hmm. good strategy for a shapeshifter, right? Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, so the thing is, you know, of course it's small. It's typically got a gray face, so kind of a gray face, mm-hmm. and has large ears, so mm. kind of elf-like ears. Mm. Um, it's magical for sure, and it will do things to trick folks, usually to hurt them. So, of course, the poisonous arrows, but then they're also rumored to push people off of cliffs and things like that. So kind of lure you cl- lure you close to the edge of a trail that has a big drop, and then all of a sudden people end up falling off of the trail. I mean, obviously they're evil. You know, this I is- mean, there's no... St- I didn't read anything about them being warm and cuddly and friendly. Yeah. So, Folks, again, if you have any experience with them, you know, let us know, right? Jeez. Puck budgie. Um, and, yeah, and, and folks talk about them, you know, so, so uh, mostly we hear about them in America here, in North America. And uh, although uh, folks write that they're related to what folks in Europe typically call goblins. Hmm. Right. We've, yeah. We've yeah. talked about goblins before. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's an interesting article that was published in 2005 in Massachusetts that was about uh, Paranormal Crossroads, uh, which is a website, Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads. And they talked about the fact that in the southeast corner of Massachusetts, there's a county there known Bristol, known as Bristol County. And uh, this locally in Massachusetts is known as one of the most haunted places in New England. Okay, so all kinds of uh, rumors of ghosts and suicides and murders in this part of Massachusetts. There's been Bigfoot sightings there, odd bear-like monsters, and of course, this creature. Kev, what does the name Puckwudgie mean? Was it available or no? Um, I'm looking here. Oh, no, no. They talk about it, though, as a little wild man of the woods that vanishes. But I don't know that there's a direct translation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, what a what a creepy thing. And, you know, yeah. you know what gets me about so many of these things, Kev, that we talk about uh Almost none of them. In fact, I can't think of a one that does anything good. No, this one, I couldn't find anything good that it did. And it is mentioned back in uh, history, like I like I said. But one of the interesting mentions here, Bill, you know the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Yep. Right? He had an epic poem called The Song of Hiawatha. 
Okay. And in this poem, he mentions the Pugwudgie. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. So he had obviously heard about it. Yeah, exactly. And then in modern day, right, the old uh, billionaire J.K. Rowling that wrote all of the Harry Potter books, which became movies in that, she talks about Pugwudgies in in the Harry Potter uh, books. Wow. Again, as this... uh, kind of goblin, like similar to the European goblin, but native to America. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, pretty wild. But a lot of the stuff, Bill, happens here in this Bristol County in Massachusetts, which I was going to say, you know, while I'm heading out up to New England, maybe I'll stop through there and spend some time in Bristol County. But after reading about it, I don't think I'm going to spend any time in Bristol County. Mm. I mean, <laughs> it's a little too much evil stuff going on. There. Yeah, you don't want to buy a Ouija board in Bristol County. Oh, oh, there's no Ouija boards in this house. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, there won't be any in the vehicle. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> That's, I heard, that's one of the things, you know, carrying more gun than you think you're going to need isn't going to help you with, uh, you know, these uh, demons, right? I think they make a good shotgun target. <laughs> you know, like you take your Ouija board and fling it up in the air. Okay, Kev, you say pull. Pull! <laughs> I'm, I'm good with that. I'm yeah. good with that. Yeah, that'd be a good target, a Ouija board. Going all the way back to uh, what's known as the Wampanoag Nation, the dominant Native American tribe in uh, in Massachusetts and southern New England, they uh, they talk about the Pugwudgie as well. Well, you know, a little sidetrack that's just coming to me now, and it's it's worth sharing. Do you remember those few pictures that fellow up in Alberta sent me uh, three or four weeks ago, Kev, that I forwarded to you? Yeah. yeah. Remember that big heavyset guy standing up against a tree, and he had a couple of pictures of uh, this and that? Uh, he's like a Bigfoot, yep. Bigfoot guy up there. Yep. Well, he had uncovered some hoops that were made of twisted branches, Branches all twisted and mangled around like taffy and then made into a circle. Uh, And they were like up in the tree on this other thing that would look like some kind of weird tree structure. I was telling another listener about that. And he said, where do you think the Indians got the dream catcher from? And I said to him, like, what do you mean? He said... That was a Bigfoot-created hoop, and somehow they inherited it or the uh, the design and incorporated it into what became known as a dream catcher. Oh, I never heard that before. I never did either. If there's any truth or veracity to it, uh, I'd like to hear from some of our uh, Native American listeners. If you know anything about that, I'd be... Uh, Glad to give a listen. So that was kind of weird. Very huh? cool. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Anyways. Bring it I don't, on, folks. I don't know how that just popped into my head, but whenever you start talking about Native Americans and strangeness, there's always feedback coming in from things that I've heard or learned, you know? Well, you know, a lot of this stuff, it comes back and, uh, 
you know, I mean, you could argue whether it comes, the, the legends come from the Native Americans or they're reinforced uh, by the Native Americans. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know, first you hear about it in modern day or near modern day, and then you go back and validate it in the Native American legends. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but this thing, you know, it's definitely like I promised at the beginning, the pug wedgies, they're definitely in the other oddities category. But there's a lot of information out there. And again, you know, in, in here, right here in America, up in New England, in this Bristol County in uh, southeastern Massachusetts, where apparently a lot of evil stuff has taken place. So I'm I'm going with the evil spirit category, Bill. I uh, I, I think uh, there's something bad going on with Pugwudgies. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, Kevin. You know, like I was saying. Most of the stuff that we investigate has an evil side. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you can talk about the black-eyed children, puckwudgies, freaking rougarous, a lot of these Bigfoot encounters, uh, UFOs, I mean, uh, poltergeists. There's not too much love and cuddly stuff being passed around amongst these uh, creatures, you know? No, but, you know, you don't want to pick on the black-eyed children. They just want to come in and use your phone. Nothing will happen to you. Nothing will happen. <laughs> we just need a little ride. Yeah, hold on. <laughs> yeah, hold on, little guys, while I get my twelve gauge. <laughs> I'll meet Nothing you. to worry about. Yeah. I'll meet you down by the front door. Just wait there. That sound is just the charging slide on my AR-15. <laughs> I know, I know, it sounds metallic and threatening, but it's not. All right, Bill, what do you got for us? Well, first of all, I'd like to apologize. I got my sinus thing going on here today, and. Uh, it's getting the best of me at times. Anyways, right. this is a, a creepy story. Uh, and I don't mean to say creepy. It's not creepy, but it's it's just so utterly fantastic. Uh, and yet this is another Bigfoot encounter in a very strange kind of roundabout way. So let me get into this. Uh, Bob and Terry Rawlings brought this incredible tale to my attention in uh, that happened to them in August of 2016. And this is what they say. This is the wife talking now, Terry. Bob and I had retired after two long careers as professors, both of us working, having worked in California colleges. We had talked about moving somewhere in the Pacific Northwest and purchasing a timber frame style home. Our punch list was quite simple for what and where the home would be. Our desire was for some seclusion without achieving a hermit's life. We were looking for considerable acreage, if possible, including the possibility of wildlife in the area. Lastly, the home must be constructed of either timber frame or log, inclusive of some stone of some sort. So this is kind of their wish list. <clears throat> Our budget for the move 
was in the neighborhood of $2 million. So these two cats uh, had a few buckaroos they were looking to lay down on this hacienda. We had done a considerable amount of research around this home purchase and had determined this number would land us what we wanted. Terry and I made contact with an executive realty service, well-known in the industry for locating fairly high-end properties for the wealthy and famous. We had seen several beautiful homes over about a three-month period, and none had quite met our liking. One afternoon, the realtor called and told us that she had just been contacted with what she called the deal of a lifetime on a home in Oregon. Oregon. Oh, no. Here come the letters. Yep. She said the buyers were highly motivated to sell and the price was well below retail on similar homes. Uh, now, let's see here. Oh, here we go. She came to our house, showed us a portfolio of fantastic pictures, and off to Oregon we went. When we arrived at the house, I couldn't believe what we were walking into. Now, this is on the other side. Honey, let me take Bill on a little sidetrack here for just a minute. So this is where Bob broke in. The two of us had really done our homework on this style of home for over a year. We knew construction costs, acreage prices, and pretty much everything else fairly well before we entered into this. Initially, we were thinking of having a home built, but we had steered away from that because of time concerns and decided to purchase one that was already built. Now, go ahead, honey. Finish what you were saying before I interrupted. So they're going back and forth here, and I wrote it down that way. Anyway, as we went inside, we were introduced to the couple who owned the place. They had only been living there for four years. They told us that they had to relocate quickly because of some urgent family issues in the East. Now, I was already calculating during our tour. On a bad day, this home must have cost them $2.5 million to build. And their asking price was $1.8. A short while later, we were out in the yard when we came upon a contractor and two men doing some repairs on what amounted to be the best chicken coop on the planet. We knew it was a coop, but it had no chickens in it, and we could easily tell that it had, it had by looking at it. This glorious coop was built in a timber frame, like the rest of the house. When I asked what damaged the structure, the owner said that it was from a storm. Now, I'm nobody's fool, and although we were standing close to a lot of forest, there was nothing near the home that could have fallen on it, and I couldn't help wondering how this damage had occurred. Nevertheless, <coughs> excuse me, having toured the home, my wife and I went aside privately to discuss matters, and we were in total agreement. This was the home for us, and we offered 1.7, and the deal was done. Now, without boring you with all the workings of the sale and the move, they went on to say that they were living in the home. During all of the time that had passed after the sale, my wife and I must have had a hundred discussions about why this couple would sell so cheaply after investing so much and only living there for four years. 
But nevertheless, the home was ours, and we were glad to be there. Now, here's where the fun begins. Over time, this chicken coop had become a bit of an enigma to us. It had to have cost them thirty, forty, or even fifty thousand dollars to build. Can you imagine this coop? And it wasn't being used. We never did ask the previous couple what had happened to the chickens. I guess at the time we thought they had just removed them, knowing we were going they were going to sell the home. However, before we get into our dealings with the coop, there's something that we must tell you. We were located in a fairly secluded property, which was in close proximity to a large forested area. The only reason I even mention this is that during our first year in the home, my wife and I were regularly hearing what I would call a whoop, whoop, whoop. Sound familiar? This sound was coming from the forest. My wife had heard it first and asked me what kind of animals could make such a sound. I thought it might have been an elk or something of the sort, and really never gave it much thought, knowing nothing about animal sounds in the area. It was some time later that we both became aware of what I will describe as a woodblock sound from an orchestra. They were very distinct sounds occurring sporadically, just like when the mallet strikes the hollow block during a piece of music. So now we were hearing a whoop and an occasional knock. I think it was our second year that my wife and I were now giving some serious consideration to getting this coop set up and running again. It wasn't something that you would just knock down or remodel. This was a purpose-built timber frame chicken coop designed that the outdoor pen buttered up against the long side of the building, and it had large barn-type doors on both ends, which gave you access to the hen house and to the eggs. It was very well thought out and constructed. The two of us did more than a little research into what was involved in raising chickens for eggs, and the resurgence of the coop was complete. It wasn't long into our newfound venture as chicken farmers that I went out to get some eggs and found some chickens were running loose around the property. I wondered how they got out. Of course, as I walked over to the coop, I saw that a large portion of the pen's wire had been peeled back, and I just stood there staring at it. I actually never did catch all of the chickens and was uncertain of what may have been taken and what was actually lost after the fact, as you will soon learn. Now, we are retired professors, not hunters. In fact, in both of our combined lifetimes, neither of us have ever so much as handled a gun, let alone fired one. I say that now because I really didn't look at the scene the way a hunter might have, looking for footprints or the like. I simply thought that some critter had torn open the fencing to get at the chickens and was successful at doing so. I inquired locally for someone to do the repairs and actually by no other means than pure dumb luck, who had contacted us but the same guy who was there doing the repairs the day we were looking at the house. So when he came over, he said to me, 
I knew this was the house when you called me. As we were looking at the wire, I asked him about the last repair he had done, which to us looked quite extensive. I told him the owner said it was storm damage, and he started laughing. He said to me, storm damage my ass. The entire end of the building in front of the coop was destroyed by some type of animals. There was no storm damage, my friend. Now, my mind was spiraling about the cheap sale price and the need to move quickly east for family matters. If they lied about the coop, the rest was a lie also. I said to him, well, I still have nine chickens in the building, so if you could please just repair the fencing and I'll see what happens. Two or three days later, when my wife and I were returning from dinner in town, I swung into the driveway rather quickly with my high beams on. Out here, there are plenty of animals to run into, so it's high beams all the time. From the end of the driveway, looking right at the end of the coop, I could see that the barn doors were ajar. And this was not how I left it upon leaving the home that night, just a few hours beforehand. My wife noticed it at the same time I did. I had just opened the door to step out, leaving the car running, when not one but two gigantic hairy monsters came crashing out of the coop, smashing the doors out of their way in the process. The two of them paused for a split second, staring at the car's lights and contorting their upper bodies. And then as fast as they had emerged from the shed, they were gone like a shot into the darkness. Now we knew the truth of what had actually happened to the former owners. We called the contractor back over and he was shocked when we told him that two Bigfoot had ransacked this coop. He did say that this is exactly what he suspected the first time around, but he hadn't said anything to the owners. I asked him if he had ever seen any, to which he said no, adding that there are many others who say that they have. In the days following, I actually paid him to demolish the coop and take the remains of it off the property. During the weeks and months that followed, my wife and I were going to immediately sell the home like the previous owners. Thankfully, we didn't. After six months or so, all of the whooping and knocks had ceased, and there were no further issues around the house. What do you think of that, Kev? So so what do they think happened? Yeah, what do they think happened? Freaking yeah. Bigfoot tore the joint apart stealing chickens. No, I know, but then he split? Yeah, well, I think his the professor's idea was... Perhaps if we get rid of the coop, we'll get rid of them. Fair enough, yeah. And it worked. Okay. So even though... Get rid of the food source. Right. And hope they don't go up the food chain. Yeah, come into the (laughs) house for food. Exactly. But uh, remarkable. I mean, it, it seemed like the thing to do initially that if you had this freaking ridiculously expensive chicken coop... How could you just justify ripping it down? Oh no, no, and and it's interesting too that 
you know, if something looks too good to be true, of course, this had a relatively happy ending so far, right? Right. But, you know, this house being sold way below the market, something's up. Yeah, you would think, right? you know, but if you oh, stand, yeah. if you're standing out in the middle of the country and uh, you're looking at this beautiful home and the landscape and whatnot, you're thinking like, you know, what the heck could happen over here, you know? Yeah. Not like vandals why or something. Why so cheap? Yeah, yeah. why so cheap? Uh, yep. You know, I mean, Wild. look, I, I guess if you were uber wealthy, 2.5, 1.7, who cares? We're out of here. I don't you know. know. I, you know, people still sell it at the value. You know, at the end of the day, some realtor is telling you what it's worth, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's what you're asking for, it. I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah. I found that really interesting that... Uh, these people had no knowledge of a wood knock or a whoop, but once again, we have people mimicking the same thing we hear over again. Like, what did it sound like? Well, like, whoop, whoop, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you hear that again and again and again, you know? Uh-oh. Yeah. Or the, the howl. Uh, you know, how many people have mimicked the howl they heard from a Bigfoot, you know? No doubt about it. And, of course, the wood knock, you know, the knocking or pounding of wood on wood or what they believe uh, is wood on wood. Mm. Crazy, huh? Wild stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah. And out there again in Oregon. (laughs) Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we have a lot of people in Oregon that love the way I say it. So, you know, I'll just keep... Apparently. Yeah, I just keep putting it out because I want to please the people. I'll tell you what, I should be happy that you're not taunting the witches, so I'm happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, their time will come. Because, you know, they're basically nice people. Yes, I know. All in good time, (laughs) my pretty. All in good time. (laughs) <laughs> All right, Bill. Well, we got some great listener mail, and that was a great account. So uh, our first letter email comes in from Will in the great state of Texas. Hmm. And it's interesting. His subject is just another flying triangle in West Texas. Ah, flying triangles. Okay, let me have it. Hmm. Yeah, so he says... Will here, writing you from the Lone Star State. I bought a decade ago or so ago. (laughs) I bought a decade ago uh, uh, and used to do oil and gas research out in West Texas, specifically in Seminole. We used to always see black triangular aircraft way off in the distance when standing outside of our hotel smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee. There were a few times where it looked like the objects actually had a bit of a mirage effect around them and would blink out and disappear. Unless you were looking with binoculars right where they were, you always seemed to lose sight of them. There was usually only one craft, but sometimes on occasion there were two following each other. At the time, we didn't think that they were that large or anything other than military stealth planes. Then one day, my entire crew was standing outside socializing in the parking lot 
when I looked over to my right and can only describe what I saw as a football-sized black triangle coming towards us. It couldn't have been any higher than 100 feet, and it wasn't moving any more than 50 or 60 miles an hour. Excuse me. One of the guys on the... Hold on just for a second. Did he say football size or the size of a football field? Football size. Football size. I guess that was what he was seeing with his eye. He was equating it to... No, with his eye. Yeah, this is like right there when they're standing outside. Okay. Yeah. One of the guys on the crew had binoculars that I grabbed from him and began examining this weird stealth plane. It was an easy hundred... So he says... So he miswrote it then. Okay. So he clearly says football, not football field. But then he talks about it as he's examining it, that it's easily 100 feet across and more than twice that thick. Wow. <coughs> so, you know, football field makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. I was perplexed because I didn't see any markings anywhere on it. It looked to be made from a similar black material as our older black stealth planes. <laughs> That's strange, man. Very strange. Yeah. Everybody was commenting on how it must be made of some type of, or how it must be some kind of experimental plane as it flew over us. And I realized and said, it's not making any noise. Wow. Everyone immediately got quiet and commented on how strange that was. I couldn't see any means of propulsion. And it was just strange how slowly it was moving. Hmm. It didn't look so much like it was flying as though it was just floating by. Yeah. I don't know if it was a test to see if the townspeople would look up and notice it, or if somebody just got their directions wrong, flew over the town of Seminole, Texas. <laughs> but it was an odd, <laughs> it's pretty funny. But it was an odd experience. Yeah. I've shared this with a few people over the years. And they always roll their eyes and say, yeah, sure, must have been a UFO. I'm pretty sure it was a military stealth plane, but since no one could identify it, I've always referred to it as a UFO. Mm. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now and really enjoy it. Thanks, Will. Yeah, you know, Will, uh, here's the funny thing about People always comparing, uh, comparing in this day and age to some type of military uh, aircraft or stealth aircraft. Well, that doesn't do anything to explain the fact that these boomerangs and triangles have been being reported for 50 to 100 years. And that's yeah. just in recent history. And we're talking about as far back as when the Wright, Wright brothers were flying uh, sticks and fabric with lawnmower engines on them at Kitty Hawk. Nobody was messing around with anything like this. So we're seeing them now. They were being seen then. And uh, there were no stealth projects, no industry making anything that would be like that at that point in time. Yeah, yeah, back then, for sure. Um, This, you know, when you're back in West Texas, right, pretty deserted place, right? So I I initially, when I started reading this, was like, okay, this is just some stealth fighters, something something coming out of the skunk works, you know, that the 
Air Force is hiding away and doesn't want anyone to see. So they put it out there where a few people might, in fact, see it, but won't have any big credibility. They're not going to get filmed and stuff like that. But this thing that looks basically like a football field floating overhead with no sound or anything, okay, that's a different game. Yeah, and I remember Art Bell and uh, Coast to Coast was always skeptical of the UFO thing. And and then he had his own encounter with his wife Ramona out in the uh, desert. And uh, he never let go of that. He said this thing came floating over him and Ramona at extremely low altitude, blocked out the stars above them, was ridiculously large, floated by, slow, no sound, and just moved on out of there. Nice. And see, that's what I always say, Kev. Everything's a joke until it happens to you. Well, yeah. I mean, I I say it all the time, folks, and I apologize. But the thing that always strikes me of the Bigfoot encounters is the Whitehall, New York incident where the police officer says, I'm looking across the hood of my car and I see right in front of me, a few feet away, what I've been told my whole life didn't exist. Yep. Bingo. I think UFOs are the same way. You know, I'm skeptical for sure, Bill, especially being an aviation enthusiast and, you know, having done some work way back when with some of those, uh, uh, you know, secret-like aircraft. And uh, it's kind of like, you, you know, there's stuff out there that we don't know about by design, and the place you're going to see it is in, like, West Texas, you know. Yeah. Where you're out in the desert in the middle of nowhere. Now, is um, it, I'm I'm not in disagreement that places like the Skunk Works uh, could be working on uh, trying to do certain things like these craft do, and that they may very well be in possession of some down craft, as many people have said. Uh, but again, going back a hundred years. These things oh, were no. being yeah. being seen before this time, so there was no skunk works. There was no no nothing involved in uh, trying to recreate such things. You know. No, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Yeah, we didn't even have a transistor for a radio back then, if you recall. <laughs> so interesting. That is, that is correct, Kev. Kev, do you remember back to Dad's first radio control boxes? Oh, yeah. Remember the old one he had? It looked like something out of an old Superman show. He had yeah. that He had that it great... It had switches on it, but no, uh, like, stick or anything to control it. Yeah, it was switches. No joystick. And the labels were like those little stick-on things. Like, nothing was painted on it. It was, like, built out no, of a... No, the, uh, the old label makers, yeah. right? Remember those yep. things? You'd, you'd spin the dial on it and <laughs> crunch it, and it would... Uh, Make an indentation on the plastic label, which yep. would be a letter or a number. Yep. So you yeah. even th- you just think relative to that, radio-controlled model airplanes, the advancements that were made in them and their control systems from when they first started with them, like little free-flight jobs that just ran out of gas, to yep. ra- radio-controlled and limited control and then... You know, some of the stuff you see today is just incredible, you well, know. Today, with the spectrum frequency hopping, 
you know, so you don't have to worry about being on the same frequency with someone else. I mean, yep. it's amazing. And, yeah. and I mean, the stuff you buy in the toy store has that technology. Yeah, just like what you would consider a toy, right? Like you're saying. Exactly, a true toy. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So, anyways, thanks, Will, for chiming in with us on that. Cool. Well, our next letter, Bill, comes from Dale in Oz, Australia. Uh Uh-huh. And Dale writes, are you guys okay? He says, hi, guys. I love the show. I've listened from day one, and I always look forward to WJ on Sasquatch Chronicles uh, before the podcast actually started. I'm writing to see why I didn't get this week's episode. Well, Dale, you did get this week's episode. I don't know. Maybe it slowed down to, uh, when it went <laughs> on to the, uh, to the other side of the world. <laughs> but he said, it's my usual Sunday night ritual to pop off to bed early and listen to Bigfoot Terror in the Woods and then not off to sleep. It's now Monday morning in Oz, of course, which is yeah. a day later. And I'm worried you guys aren't coming back. Uh. No. I hope everything is okay, Dale in <laughs> Australia. You well, know, Dale, obviously we came back and everything's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, and We're I love fine. I love to hear that stuff, Kev. That uh, uh, Dale, you know, plugs us in when he's nodding off just to kind of listen to the uh, the podcast for an hour, and uh, it does my heart good because I have a uh, I have a radio on my nightstand. And many nights when I'm a little antsy trying to get to sleep or if I wake up in the middle of the night tossing and turning, I put a little earbud in my ear and I just listen to a little talk or something, you know? Yeah. And uh, I got that from Dad, Kev. I was going to say, Bill, I got it from Dad, too. Oh, you do the same thing? Yeah. It's freaking amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I don't look down at it. It's just something I'd like to do. There's something about... Oh, no, it's good. It's relaxing. Yeah, it's just something about it. And uh, I, I always look back when I, we used to listen to Gene Shepard on the radio. Dad always had no Gene Shepard on. Yeah, no doubt and, about uh, it. So here we are telling stories uh, to a listening audience, and that's basically what Gene Shepard was doing. Exactly. Fantastic, exactly. man. Fantastic. Good stuff. Yep. All right. Well, Clayton writes in. He doesn't say where he's from, but he's spending. He says, hey, fellas, I'll be spending my holiday this summer in the Ozark Mountains. If you find yourself howling in my woods like the Ozark Howler, you might end up carrying around a lot more hot lead in your butt cheek (laughs) than than you think you'll be comfortable with. I love that, Clayton. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, well, look, listen. If I had one piece of hot lead in my butt cheek, that'd be more than I could handle, Clayton. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh that's funny, you know. And then our last letter, Bill, also has to do with the Ozarks, but it comes in from Adam in Iowa. And the subject is creepy things in lakes. Wow. And Adam writes, in reference to episode 98 and the Lady of the Lake, which folks had to do with uh, Lake Lanier down in Georgia, 
mm-hmm. the lady in the blue dress. That was creepy. Adam man. writes, I am reminded of Lake of the Ozarks in central Missouri. Uh-huh. This lake is about three and a half hours from my home, and I visit it somewhat often. Although I've not read or heard of any supernatural sightings, the lake bed is reported to be the home of many hundreds of graves that may or may not have been removed prior to the Bagnell Dam construction in the 1930s. In fact, there's an entire town called Lynn Creek that was inundated and buried at the bottom of the lake. Some boaters claim that the church steeple is visible beneath the surface during low water. Mm. That's pretty creepy. Yeah, that is creepy. He says, however, I did read that all of the town structures were raised and burned before the flooding. Lynn Creek Cove is relatively shallow at about 50 feet deep, so I can see how someone would think such a sighting is possible. What really creeps me out about Lake of the Ozarks is the number of drowning victims that are never found. <laughs> this is a very touristy party lake with many drunken boaters who fall overboard or swim without life jackets, consequently drowning. It's rumored that the catfish grow immense from the amount of human flesh that they feast on mm. as these people sink to the murky bottom. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. In fact, some divers at the dam have come up terrified after seeing these giants. Just look up, quote, the man-eating catfish of Bagnell Dam, unquote. Mm. And by the way, that sounds like a future episode. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, kid, we need to look into the man-eating catfish. We do have to look into that. And he says, anyhow, I just wanted to chime in because I agree that the murky depths of our man-made lakes are full of creepy lore. Take care and God bless Adam. You see, I love Pretty this Pretty good, stuff. Bill. So good podcast. And folks... I want to tell you, we're getting to the dog days of summer. We're in the dog days of summer. And I'm going to be taking off for a couple of weeks here to hike around New England and maybe run into a hairy man and report back on it. So you might miss us for a couple of weeks here and just think of us as recharging our batteries and hang in there and come and listen to us when we get back. I assure you. Nothing's happened to us unless my brother reports on me being eaten by a hairy man, which I guess could happen. But I will be carrying more gun than I think I'm going to need. That's crazy, man. Hey, Kev, I'll tell you something. I think you're really going to find something. I'll I think, be looking for sure. Yeah, I think you're going to come across some uh, some tracks and uh, I'm so just, hoping it's just not the evil dog man or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's see what happens, man. Maybe you'll come back with some type of way out. I'll, I'll take a stinky, hairy man, even one with webbed, three-toed feet. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. And listen, if you folks should find yourself walking along up in the northeast on a little camp out you better remember one thing my friends always carry more gun than you think you're going to need sleep tight